All right, if you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Acts chapter 14. And um, we, we continue our series going through um, just, just getting a picture of who Jesus is, meeting him as um, through the, the stories and sermons that Luke has recorded to us, first in the Gospel of Luke and now in Acts. And, and today we come upon um, a, a, an interesting chapter in and we're going to read most of the chapter. I know we don't often do that, but I just want to read the, just the, the, the whole context of what we're going to be dealing with today so that way we can get a good picture of it before we dive in. Let it, let it saturate us before we begin anything else. And so, um, if you will, <clears throat> Acts chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 23, uh, the story here of Paul and, and Barnabas. And so in, in Acts 14, it says, Now in Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding county. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, and said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet." And he sprang up and began walking. And, the, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good noise that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and that was all that in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words that are scarcely restrained. The people restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them continuing to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with a prayer and fasting, they committed to them the Lord in whom they had believed. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit to guide us through our time. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for your truth. 
God, we thank you that, that we're not left on our own to seek you, but you've given us everything we need in your word. And we thank you that your word is powerful, that it's the very word that you spoke creation into being. God, I just pray that today your words would be as powerful in our lives. God, that your spirit would well up inside of us. God, if there's some here who have never submitted their life to you, God, that they would hear the gospel and believe. I just pray that we submit ourselves to you in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so when we look at this text, there's really, there, there, there's, it's kind of broken up. Your, our Bibles do a good job of that because it's kind of in different paragraphs, and so it's kind of easy to see the distinctions. But, but in those distinctions, we're going to talk about the biblical gospel. And, and uh, my title's a little longer than normal. I don't know if I'm, I, I argued with, I was talking to Dave and Clean. I said, I don't know if I'm smart enough to have a long title. I feel like that's, the, like the Puritans, the old, they had real long titles, but it fit. So um, we're going to be talking about the biblical gospel in an age of uncertainty, because that's what we live in. We live in an age where truth is relative, if truth even exists. That, that there's nothing that's certain about life. It's what you make of it or what someone else feels like. And so it's, it's critical that we get back to a biblical understanding of the gospel. It's critical that our lives are shaped by a biblical gospel. And so the, the question to start with, to ask yourself is, do you believe in the biblical gospel? The gospel that's presented in the truth of God's word. Do you believe in that gospel? And if you don't, is, is the gospel you reject a biblical understanding of the gospel? Because how we answer those questions, and they're critical to understand, determines everything. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 14. It's the biblical gospel that is causing problems moving throughout the land that is powerfully acting in the lives of people. And so we have to consider that. And so as we go through this today, ask yourself, that is the gospel that I truly believe in, the biblical gospel? Or is the gospel that I've been fighting against a biblical gospel? Or is it a version of something that someone has once said that they didn't live? And so it's not a true understanding of that gospel. And so when we look at these verses today, there's really three things that happen. It might be better to understand as one is kind of like the catalyst that leads to the next two. And and that'll make more sense as we get further. But the first thing that we see is that there's a gospel requirement to our lives. There's a gospel requirement to our lives. And so kind of to set the stage again, these first few verses, when it says, now in Iconium, they enter together into the Jewish synagogue. And we need to understand this is Galatia. And a lot of people think that these are the same places, Acts 14, are the same places that Paul was writing to in Galatians. You don't know specifically because we're not sure exactly what Galatia part was. There's, a, there's an argument for the northern. There's an argument for the southern where we are here in Acts 14. But these are that problem, modern-day Turkey, to get you oriented in the world map. And, and it's Paul and Barnabas. They're, they're going. They speak in the Jewish synagogue. And it's interesting because last week we talked about how Paul was saying that it had to go to the Jews first so it could go to the Gentiles. But we see him coming into a city now not far from Antioch where he was last week and he's speaking again in the synagogue and what's amazing is that they had a successful ministry right you look at that look what happened but the unbelieving verse one the second part of verse one in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that what a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed 
And so we need to understand that, that and it sets up later on in the story that this was a, in, in Rome, it was a Roman province, but it was a Greek city. Okay, so when we think of these people, they, they brought their Greek religion. They brought that with them. And so when we see that they had a successful ministry, because well, a number of both Jews and Greeks. So the gospel was working. The gospel was changing people's lives. But when we look at this further, we, we see what happens when, the, when true biblical gospel is preached. And you start seeing that in verse 2, when the unbelieving Jews, so the Jews, God's chosen people that didn't believe in Jesus, they've rejected that biblical gospel. They're still waiting on the side. What did they do? They come in and they poison the minds of the Gentiles. And it's interesting because you see that often even in our culture. It's the people that are against the gospel, they don't nearly speak out as often as they do to stir up other people to do it. They, they find ways, because a lot of times people that are rejecting this, they're, they're, they don't have the boldness to speak against it, but they're going to create a mob because then they feel secure or strong. And that's exactly what's happening. They poisoned the mind of these Greek Gentiles who were starting to believe the gospel's coming, and so they're acting against it. And here's where we first get the, an idea of what we need to do. Look at verse 3. What an amazing response. So they remained for a long time. Right? How often can that be said of your life that you had opposition, a good thing's going, and you have opposition, and so you stay longer? Right? You know, we flee, don't we? If we're honest, the first sign of objection, we, we tend to back down. Right? We cannot, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe we start, we start questioning what we do. And so, if you believe in the biblical gospel, we're called to stand firm in the face of opposition. They, they changed their plans. They stayed longer. They stayed longer. Why? Because they were going to speak boldly for the Lord. You see that? They don't just stay longer, but they speak boldly, and they speak about the Lord who bore witness for himself. See, we don't have to provide the action within the gospel. We speak it boldly, and then the Lord works. And then we come across our biblical gospel requirement. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And that's, that's really right there what we're talking about. We have a gospel requirement. If we truly believe in the biblical gospel, you have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. And we don't like doing that, right? You kind of, uh, uh, some of you might be kind of non-committal in every aspect of your life. Like you live in the, well, I'll see or maybe realm. Like there's never certainty in your life. And that bleeds into how you treat the gospel. It's always this, well, I don't know. Or when, when I have time for it, forgetting that you're the one that's setting your schedule. I don't know anyone here that's a slave to anyone else. And so if we live in this idea of I'll see or I don't know, well, maybe, then we're not truly submitting our lives to the biblical gospel because the gospel that's proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas here is a gospel that requires us to pick a side. And that's, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable because it's a lot easier. Your life is a lot smoother if you kind of just live in the middle, right? You kind of draw on both sides, but that's not the requirement of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel says you either accept it or you reject it. You either accept the grace of Christ or you reject the grace of Christ. You're either for Christ and for the gospel, you're against it. There's not this midway in a biblical understanding of the gospel. It's a requirement to pick a side. You see that the city was divided. 
The gospel divides. It sets people out because it causes you to pick a side. Some sided with the Jews. Some said, well, maybe they're right. Or I'm going to reject that, so I'm by default here. And others sided with the apostles. They know that's, that's the gospel. They've seen the power working. They've seen and understood what the gospel was doing in their lives. Because, why? A great number of Jews and Greeks have believed. Paul's speaking boldly and the Lord's bearing witness through many signs. It's happening, and so they side with the apostles. But you notice that Luke doesn't talk about anyone that was undecided. It doesn't say, well, some of them just kind of said, eh, whatever. Because this is a true understanding. You're either for or against. And we live in an age of uncertainty that says, just do whatever. It's okay to just be a maybe person. It's okay to be noncommittal because you really don't want to be held down by that, right? And that's what we do in our lives. I, I, I do this all the time. I do this all the time. And it, and it drives me crazy. And so as I was looking through this, it was like, man... I feel like God was telling me something way before I'm getting to tell you. Because it's like, you have to be committed. And, and what it made me think about is that there's so many times I hear conversations. And oftentimes, conversations of people here in the room where you're just like, eh, it's, it's, it's whatever. It's just, it's just whatever. Like, it doesn't matter what beliefs people have. It's whatever. And we have, there, there's people that I know that claim to be Christians that say, well, that doesn't really matter when it's a core doctrine of the church. That's absurd. Because when we look at the biblical gospel, it says pick a side. You're either for Christ or against him. There is no, well, that's okay for them. If this is the, the true power of the gospel, then it matters, and it matters so much that you have to choose a side. The proclamation of the biblical gospel requires a commitment. And it's either for or against and so often we have people in our lives that reject the gospel by passively accepting it. By, oh, it's okay. Well, that's okay for them, or I don't want to stand up against that. And so what happens then is you, is you look at this idea and you're like, well, wait a second. Because if you look up, if you notice, and if you can look at, go home and, and find some of these different denominations or different Christians who have slowly started to, to alter the gospel, it inevitably leads to completely losing it. There is no, well, maybe I can make that work, and then ultimately you find yourself on solid biblical ground. You don't. You can't. It's not possible because you have to either accept it or you're rejecting it. And we don't like that. It, it, doesn't that make you feel uncomfortable? Doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable but that, that how you treat this is either one way or the other? But so often, we're told. And, and see, what happens, it really, I was thinking about it this way, it plays out a lot of times this way, is that have there been people in the church, the past of the church, that have used the gospel in a negative way to segregate or to throw people out to affirm slavery? yes. We have to acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean that we get to now somehow change and mold it so that we can make certain sins okay to apologize for people that have gone past. It's not our job to protect the gospel. It's our job to pick a side, to choose the biblical gospel or reject it. Yes, we can, yes, we can ask for forgiveness for times when the church has used it in negative ways, but that doesn't mean that we somehow then mold it to say, well, if they were wrong, 
Maybe this is what it means now. Because we have that over and over in our society. And that's not just in in cities where it's liberal. That's here. So many people around here, and you've got to hear it. I hear it all the time. To where, well, does it really mean that? Yeah, it does. If it's written in the truth of God's word, then we can't somehow think, oh, well, now all of a sudden that doesn't mean this culture. That was just for the first century. As if God's word is only good for one century. If that's the case, don't even open it, right? I mean, that's, that's where it is. And I don't know if you grasp the understanding of this because that's why we planted a church is to be committed to a biblical gospel. And if we're living on the fringes, then you might as well not even try because you don't have it. It's either for or against. And so what do we do for those people that have been hurt by the church? I think that Verse 3 is the key. So they remained for a long time. So we build relationships with those people. We, we build relationships. We ask for forgiveness saying that, and acknowledge that, yes, somehow that's been misused, but that doesn't throw it away. So we speak boldly even though they've been hurt by that message. We show them through a long relationship that it's truth. And then realize that it's not us that has to convince them of that. It's God working in their lives. Because they spoke boldly, what? For the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. He was the one doing the witness and the proving. And so, so many times, instead of building a relationship and staying with those people, we just throw out the gospel that we believe in and say, well, it's all right. We're sorry. Just do whatever you want to with it. It's not the gospel requirement that we see here in Acts 14. Because if that's how Paul and Barnabas would have responded, nothing would have ever happened. People would have gone on worshiping their own gods, rejecting the biblical gospel, and ending up condemned for it. We have to pick a side. Even if it's uncomfortable, it's required of us. The whole city was divided. People are divided on the gospel. And that's because you either reject it or you accept it. There's no middle ground. And so that's why I say that's the catalyst. Because if we, if we accept the biblical gospel, if we truly take it in, don't apologize for God. He doesn't need us to apologize for him. We need to explain why we believe that. We explain how that's best for human flourishing and how the truth of the scripture is good for us. That's the catalyst then that leads us to the next things that we see Paul and Barnabas calling people to do or displaying themselves. And the first one is repentance. Look at, look at verse, the, the first part of verse um, eight, 8, 9, and 10. Now in Lystra, so they've moved. Why? Because people are going to mistreat them. Right? They were going to try to stone them. So Paul and them leave. They go to Lystra. And they see this guy. He was sitting there as a cripple. He's never walked before. It's important to understand that because then the healing is a miraculous thing. It's not just a reversal of something that happened in life. And he's never walked before and he springs up. Don't you? I love the way that Luke, he doesn't just kind of stand up. No, he gets up and he's gone, right? He stands up. He springs up just from hearing that. And then what happens? This amazing thing happens. Look at verse 11. And when the, crowd, when, the, when the crowd saw Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian. Notice they're speaking a language that Paul doesn't speak. We assume that he doesn't speak it. That's why Luke's saying 
They were in another language. And what happens? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the messenger of the gods. He was the chief speaker. And so when we look at this idea, we see that, that these people are worshiping. And the first thing we need to notice about that is that worship exists outside of a gospel understanding of life. Worship exists. They worshiped. They already worshiped. They already had this idea of what worship is. And we need to understand that, that all people worship something. All people worship in a way. And so they thought, well, hey, we worship Zeus and all these Greek gods. See, that's why it's important to understand. If you don't realize it's a Greek city, you don't understand why they called Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. That was their gods. Now they've come down. This is an amazing thing, right? So they saw the world through their lens, which they were already worshiping. And the only way that they could fit within this is to take their paradigm for what they already worshiped and apply that to Paul and Barnabas. Everybody worships something. And so look what happens in verse 14. But when the Paul, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, first when you see here, this is the first time, or one of the first times, if I'm remembering incorrect, that apostles use in a different term. When we look at this, the uh, apostle Barnabas, he wasn't chosen specifically, but now he's the true sense of the meaning, a sent one. He was sent out. That's, that's where we get that. So when the apostles, when Barnabas and Paul realized what was happening, remember, they're speaking Lyconian, something's going on. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation, if you've ever been in an airport, and you hear people speaking a different language, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. I kind of feel like that's what Paul and Barnabas are going Like They don't know what's going on. There's this cool commotion. It could easily be a positive thing. They don't know what's happening. Then all of a sudden they realize it, and, and they tear their garments. They just get mad, and they rushed into the crowd because they can't, handle people worshiping falsely. So they stopped this idolatry. Like, no. And how easy, if we're honest, let's be honest for a second, how easy would it be for someone to just accept the worship of people, right? Right? Like, like that would have been a cool thing. Like, wait a second. I, I now, I just tried to get, they just tried to stone me in another city. Now all of a sudden this one's trying to worship me? I think I'll stay here, right? Like, I, I get that. And if we're honest, we crave approval so much of people that we would do the same. It would be hard to do what they did. But no, they're committed to the biblical gospel. They've chosen their side. And so when they hear what's happening, they rush out and they stop this worship. They stop. They stop what's happening. And look at verse 15. Look how they stop it. And this is a, a critical point that we need to understand when we see people in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, even family members that are worshiping false idols. This is what we do. It says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. He's saying, I'm not Hermes. He's not Zeus. But we bring you good news. What? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. See, that's what we need to attack false worship with. It's the gospel. Turn from these vain things, these vain idols that aren't going to survive your lifespan. They're not going to stand firm because they're, they're false idols and come to a living God who what? Who created. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea that is all that is with them. So they see this, this false worshiping happen, understanding that people worship, and then they say, no, it can't happen. Here's what you should do. Turn from it. Repent of your false worship. And that's what we need to do the same. We need to understand that we interpret the world through our own lens. 
that we come to Scripture with predetermined thoughts. I was listening to um, another pastor talk about this, and, and he kind of divided it up this way, and I thought it was a, a good way to apply it. He says that, that if you're a realist, that when you read the Bible, the miracles and all this that happens are going to see kind of not valid. Right? That if you're like, the reality is we don't see that happening, so surely this is just hyperbole. Surely this guy didn't spring up. Right? And so when we approach the Bible, if you're kind of worried about this realism and this idea that we need to see that, then that, that stuff in the Bible automatically is out for you. And then he also moved on. He talked about, but if, you're, if you tend to be a feminist, then every gender role that you see in Scripture is messed up because that's patriarchy. That's not what it's supposed to be. And so you approach truth with your own lens of worship instead of taking it for God's Word. And if you're bound on science then creation's clearly not right. That Moses was confused. He just stole stories from other religions and just compiled them into one. We have to understand that we interpret the lives through the lens that we already worship in. That's just what happens. And so we don't need to take that. We need to repent of those false views and understand what the God has given us. And when we understand that and we try to do that, we realize that we've been given so much by God. And that's where Paul goes. What what an amazing thing that we forget about what he talks about. In in verse 17, Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so uh, an easy way to understand that into our lives, that everything that you have that's good is from God. And it's an example of his grace in your life. And notice that he's talking to people that aren't Christians. And so this is that common grace that God's given to everyone. The the rain for the earth to flourish. That's an example of God's grace on creation and all life. That he gives you fruitful seasons. That those things happen. And so what they need to do is you need to realize that this is a living God. Turn from those vain sources of worship and exalt him and give him praise. Because you see evidences of his grace everywhere. Your entire life is an evidence of God's grace. And so we need to understand that there's a gospel repentance that has to happen. If we're going to stand firm on the biblical gospel, then we have to repent of all these false idols, of all these ways where we read the truth through our lens to make it fit better in the world that we live in. And so instead of taking the uncertainty of our culture to truth, We need to go to the truth that transcends the uncertainty and has sustained. We have to understand that. And then ultimately, there's a gospel reality that we must embrace. If we're going to be committed to the gospel, we're going to pick a side. It's either for or against. It's either loving Jesus or hating him. And that's going to lead to knocking down your idols, repenting of those things because you see how great he is. But then there's a gospel reality that most of us don't want to hear, much less acknowledge. And so look what happens in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So they're kind of following him, right? They tried to stone him in Iconium. He left. Now there's this crazy stuff happening in Lystra. They're trying to worship him. But what happens? The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, here they go. They stir up the crowd. That's a common theme if you know the New Testament. The crowds always get stirred up by these people. And what did they do? They stoned Paul. They didn't just try to do it. They stoned him. 
Then what they do? They drug him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So it wasn't just like a, oh, he made it away. Like, they thought he was dead. They, they had succeeded in what they were supposed to do. They had succeeded in, in squelching what was happening through Paul and Barnabas. And notice that they didn't stone Barnabas. They stoned Paul. They stoned the one, they stoned the one that was speaking boldly of the gospel. And that's the first thing we need to understand is that, that the gospel reality is that we will suffer for that cause. But notice some things in here. This is the same crowd that just tried to worship them. Notice, we didn't switch cities, right? We're still in Lystra. So two verses ago, they're worshiping them as Zeus and Hermes, and now they're killing them, right? The, the people are so fickle, right? Because they understood that all of a sudden, wait a second, you're not them? Well, that can't be right. So we're going to stone you, right? You would think that they would be devoted enough to their false worship that the people that they thought were that, they wouldn't just immediately turn and kill. But that's not the reality because people lash out when you take stuff from them. So when we call people and we stand up boldly and proclaim the gospel, people lash out against that. They can be your best friend one day and hate you the next. Why? Because the gospel divides. The gospel divides. So the same crowd that had just tried to worship him, now is killing him, right? And they thought they did. They drug him out, he's dead. But what happened, or they thought he was dead, what happens? But when the disciples gathered, it's the second thing we need to remember, that not all the people will always be persuaded. You could add here that maybe these were the true believers that heard the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things, that they actually responded, and now they come to Paul. There's people that argue that maybe Paul actually was dead, and that they prayed for him and God raised him, but there's really no evidence in that. I just want to throw that out there in case you read something like that. There's people that talk about that Paul was dead, that they didn't mess up and think he was dead, that he was, and the disciples, because what do they do? They gathered about him and he rose up and entered the city. And so there's people that would say, if, you're, if you do some research on your own, people are going to say that Paul was dead and he was resurrected. But that's a stretch at best on this. So, but if you go read... Yes, that's there. Some people will say that. But what happens? They thought he was dead. They stoned him. He rises up the next day, and he went on with Bar- Barnabas to Derby. He's like, all right, let's keep going. Right? I've been called to preach. Let's preach. I just was supposedly dead the day before, and now he's going. Right? And when he preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, he returned to Lystra. He goes back. Right? That's, that's something that, that's foreign to us. That if we understand that suffering is part of the gospel, it just becomes part of your life, and you have to embrace that. He, he goes back to the same place. How many of you want to sign up for persecution, and then when it doesn't work the first time, go back the next month? Right? Who, I got away. Hey, I'm going to come back. That's, that's crazy. We don't do that, do we? We don't do that, but we need to understand that suffering is a part of the gospel life, and it's, sometimes it's, it's not voluntary. Sometimes it's not voluntary. There are people in here that if you... Commit your life to the biblical gospel that you're going to have family members mock you and disown you. We think that that's like a, a Middle East thing. That's like a, a Muslim thing that when people accept Christ. No, people do it here. That if you believe the gospel, you're going to have family members that don't understand it, that, that mock you, that think that you're losing your mind, that how can you even go to that? So it's not your fault. It's not a voluntary suffering. It's just what happens. You're going to have friends that all of a sudden aren't your friends. And then your thought will be, well, were they ever really my friend? We have to acknowledge that. The suffering is part of that. And that's what he even says. And look at the last part of verse 22. 
He encourages them to continue in the faith, saying what? That through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Through suffering. And some of that's not voluntary. You're going to have friends and family members that mock you and cast you aside and that say you're irrelevant, that you're not loving because you're believing in the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us. It ultimately cost Paul his life. But also, that could be voluntary. That, that could be voluntary. If we, and if we're going to commit to the biblical gospel, then all of a sudden, maybe you need to change your schedule. Maybe you need to quit going to God when you need him and just accepting that the, the scope of his kingdom and, and ownership in your life is total. So many times I hear people talk about that I just don't have time for that. And, I, and I've got to be honest, right now it just makes me mad. So I'm like, yes, you do. I do everything that I want to do. As long as Lindsay's okay with it, right? right? As long as it fits in the schedule, right? We do everything we want to do. We, we're not blessed with a, a ton of money, but we don't hurt for that. So whatever schedule that we want to decide, we just do that. And maybe that's not the way it should be. Maybe we need to change our schedule. Maybe be more committed to the cause of proclaiming the gospel boldly. And I think that if we would do that, our lives would be dramatically changed and unexplainable things would happen. That people would be drawn to it. Because right now, if they just see us come on Sunday and never change our life, it's not important. That's the day to sleep in, right? So we, we talked about that um, the other day at the, the, yesterday at men's breakfast, a couple of, like Saturday's their day to sleep in, yet they choose to do it. What if we do that every day? What if we choose to give something up and, and realize that that's a part of voluntarily suffering for the gospel? Maybe you need to change some things. And your unwillingness to do so reveals your lack of total commitment to a biblical gospel. Because through many tribulations, right? If we, if we, look, at, if we look at 2 Corinthians, you go 2 Corinthians um, 12, Paul says this. He says, my grace, is just Jesus, he's quoting Jesus, says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. So you're suffering, his power is made perfect. And then Paul continues, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I pray that we'd be people that can say that. That in insults and hardships and persecutions, I'm stronger because of it. Because I've embraced this idea that the gospel reality is that we will suffer now and have glory then. And you, you understand, it's not, saying that, it's not saying that we don't have glory, it just comes later. And that's what happened with Christ. If we want to go back to that, and that's what, that's what people do right now. People that, that try to go back to, let's, let's see how the gospel impacts our lives now. They say, look at Jesus, he loves sinners. And he also died for them because he knew that they would go to hell. But we forget that. We forget that he suffered now to have glory later. So why should our lives be any different? Suffering now and glory later, we should embrace that. The gospel is a message of delayed gratification. And that's why it's okay as parents to say no to your kids. There's a gospel implication to understanding that you have to wait for something that's good. 
And it doesn't mean that you just tell them no all the time. But it means that it's okay to tell kids. Youth, it's okay to be told no. Right? It's okay to, to not have access to something. That's the gospel message. It's suffering now. Glory later. That's Christ. And so why shouldn't we do that? And so the way to kind of understand this is that what is the gospel that you believe calling you to do? Or is the gospel you believe in requiring you to choose a side? Is the gospel that you believe in requiring you to pick a side either for or against? Because if it's a gospel that says just kind of pick and choose what's good, then it's not the gospel. Is it requiring you to repent of your idols? Is it requiring you to embrace suffering? But see, if we're honest, we don't, we don't choose the gospel because we seek approval from men, right? If we're honest. If we're honest, we don't, we don't choose one side or the other when it comes to the gospel because we worry about what people are going to say. We worry about how are my friends going to react to this? What is my coworker going to say when I, when I do this? Because we want to be friends. Like, I like that person, but if I stand firm in this, what are they going to think? And so we don't choose we try to walk this middle ground that's not found. We, we try to seek approval from our family. And I have to believe that this is why Christ can say that you should leave the dead to bury the dead. That you, you should go before your family. Because some of you, if you're going to choose God, it's going to be to not choose your family. Because they're going to cast you out. They're going to write you out of the will. They're going to not speak to you anymore. And that leads to why we don't choose to embrace suffering. Because we live in a comfort society, right? We, we want comfort. Everything, about the, everything that we're marketed on in our lives is all about comfort, isn't it? Like even down to, uh, I heard a, another, as Bob Thune was talking about the fact that, that even mattresses, right? Like, you've got a great mattresses, mattress. Have you tried the sleep number? Like, it's better, for you. Like it provides more comfort. Everything about our life is about comfort. And so if it's about comfort, if we understand that our culture and we hear that message that you should just be comfortable, your life should be comfortable, then we're going to reject the gospel that says embrace suffering. So we're going to choose comfort over choosing suffering now and glory later. We deserve a new car. We deserve a better job because this job just doesn't do it for me anymore. So I should be able to go get another one when the fact you're just lazy and wanting excitement. It's just work. Sometimes work is boring. I'm about to do that this week when I have to give the star test. My job will not be fun, right? It won't be. But that doesn't mean I should just go find something else. Like, oh, well, that's not, that's not comforting anymore, so I'm just going to go do something else. But that's what we do, right? Is that in it? I know I'm not the only one that thinks that way, right? Maybe you need a new car because did you see your neighbor's new one? You could get that, right? You could afford that. You should deserve that comfort, right? It has Wi-Fi capabilities, right? That's what we do, though. But we need to realize that, that we don't deserve comfort. We're supposed to embrace suffering because that's what Christ did. So if this is truly going to change our lives, we have to decide, is the gospel we believe in requiring us to do those things? Because if it's not, then you need to repent. You need to become aware that maybe you're not believing the biblical gospel. Maybe you're believing a version of it. 
And if we read Ephesians, Paul says that there is no other. There's one gospel. And that one gospel requires us to pick a side. And that one gospel requires us to repent of our false idols, our false gods in, in, in how we worship. And that one gospel requires us to understand that the reality is we embrace suffering now. Because the glory that we will get far outweighs any comfort that this world can provide. Let's pray. Father God, we, God, we thank you that, that we can choose. God, we thank you that you've shown us in your son Jesus Christ how life is supposed to be lived. God, I just pray that, that right now that, that myself and, and everyone here, God, would understand that you require us to choose a side. That, that we can't hear the gospel message that you sent your son to die for us because we were sinners, that you sent him to die the death that we deserve and that we live because of him, that we can't hear that message and not pick a side. That we either commit ourselves and submit ourselves to him or reject him. And God, I just pray that we would be people that understand that. God, that we would realize that we have so many sources of false worship that so often we approach your truth through our own lens instead of the biblical gospel and I pray that we would be people marked by repentance and I just pray that we would be willing and ready to embrace suffering even if it's not something that we chose to do God but even if we choose to restructure everything of our lives because we see what you've done in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would be a church marked by that devotion so that people would see the change and be drawn to you because you bear witness through your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.